Welcome to the Book of Mormon, a masterclass. This podcast is designed to help you come closer to Jesus Christ by seriously studying the Book of Mormon. This was originally designed as a video course. To see the visuals for this episode, please visit johnhiltonii.com slash the Book of Mormon. Before we dive into our class today, I want to stop and just talk a little bit about this course as a whole. I'm so glad that you're here. I hope that it's going well for you. One of the things that I wish were a little different about this course is that we could have more interaction together. I've received really nice notes and emails from people all around the country. And if we were all in the room together, and let's say we were talking about the principle that the righteous need not fear, I'd say, who could share with us an experience from your life where you've been strengthened by Jesus Christ to not fear in a difficult situation? And if we were all together, someone would raise his hand and share from Albania, and then a woman from Brazil would share. We would have so much great interaction together that we just don't quite have in this format. So to help remedy that, I'm going to try to include video clips from participants of this course from around the world, where you share an experience from your life that relates to a principle that we're talking about. If you'd like more details or to share your own thoughts and experiences, just go to johnhiltonii.com slash participate. I've given lots of information there about how you can participate in this way in the course. And at the end of our class today, we'll actually see a video submission from a member of our course. Now, the second thing that I wanted to talk about is how are you feeling about your personal scripture study? This course is really fun because we get a lot of information, but I don't want us to lose sight of the fact that one of the most important outcomes of this course is to strengthen your own ability to seriously study the Book of Mormon. So I hope your personal scripture study is going well. Back in our first class, we were so excited with President Benson's quote about doing a serious study of the Book of Mormon and feeling a spiritual power flow into our lives. I hope that's happening for you. If you're not finding that your scripture study is meaningful on a regular basis, I encourage you to go to the course website and look up some of the resources for increasing our scripture study skills. Finally, when I conceived the idea of having a masterclass on the Book of Mormon, I intentionally called it the Book of Mormon A Masterclass, because I think something called the Masterclass should be taught by Mormon, Moroni, Nephi, or someone more qualified than I am. It would also probably need to be a much longer class. We could have literally hundreds of classes on the Book of Mormon, each in one or two or three or more hours in length. But I intentionally designed this course to be taught over 52 weeks, with each class being about 30 minutes, some a little less, some probably like today being a little bit longer. And that means that we have some difficult decisions about what to teach in this course and what to leave out. And I just want to acknowledge there's lots of important details that we're not even going to discuss. But that's okay. My goal is not to cover everything, but hopefully the things that we do cover, we cover well. Today, we're going to focus on a few major areas. First, we'll travel with Lehi and his family to the promised land. Second, we'll pause a little bit in 1 Nephi chapter 19 and look at the teachings from the brass plates and get ready to study Isaiah. Then we'll dive deep into Isaiah's writings. And while some of us are afraid of this moment, we'll actually find out that Isaiah is not that difficult to understand, and he points us to Jesus Christ. Finally, we'll look at Nephi's thoughts on how Isaiah's words can be likened to us in our day. So with that, let's go to the promised land. In 1 Nephi chapter 16, at first, everything is going amazing. People get married, and the Liahona is guiding them through the more fertile parts of the wilderness, so there's plenty of great food to eat. But then there's a problem. 
Before you look at this problem, consider a little analogy. If I had a can of Coke and a bottle of water and I shook them both up and I was gonna open one right into your face, which would you prefer? Probably the water, because we all know that when a can of soda is shaken up, it can explode. Well, think about that analogy in connection with a story told by the CEO of Google. He said, it was a nice restaurant. People were eating. Two women were together at a table when one of them noticed a cockroach on the table. She stood up and screamed. The other woman screamed and all of the people around them were freaking out. Meanwhile, a waiter walked over, very calm, picked up the cockroach, threw it out the window, and everything was just fine. Commenting on this experience, Sundar said, it was not the cockroach, but the inability of those people to handle the disturbance caused by the cockroach that caused the problem. It's not the traffic jams on the road that disturbs me, but my inability to handle the disturbance caused by the traffic jam that disturbs me. More than the problem, it's my reaction to the problem that creates chaos in my life. Think about that story and analogy as background for the problem that Nephi and his family faced when Nephi's bow broke and his brother's bows had lost their springs. So now there's no way to get food for the family. There's a couple of different ways that people reacted. First, we can see that Laman, Lemuel, the sons of Ishmael, even Lehi began to murmur against the Lord. Contrast that with Nephi. Nephi tells us, I, Nephi, did make out of wood a bow and out of a straight stick an arrow. Wherefore, I did arm myself with a bow and an arrow, with a sling and with stones. And I said unto my father, where shall I go to obtain food? I'm sure Laman and Lemuel had the skill set necessary to build a bow, but they didn't use it. They reacted. They murmured and complained when things got hard. In contrast, I love that phrase, I, Nephi, did. Nephi acted when things were difficult. We too have a similar choice. When things are hard, we can act or we can react. And we see the same principle in 1 Nephi chapter 17. Both Nephi and his brothers will describe their time in the wilderness. Nephi says, So great were the blessings of the Lord upon us. Our women were strong. Thus we see that the commandments of God must be fulfilled. Notwithstanding, we had suffered afflictions and much difficulty, yea, even so much that we cannot write them all. We were exceedingly rejoiced. Nephi admits it wasn't easy in the wilderness. There were so many problems, we can't write them all. But Nephi was still able to focus on joy and rejoicing and the positive. Contrast that perspective with Laman and Lemuel. They said, we have wandered in the wilderness for these many years. Our women have suffered all things. It would have been better that they had died. Behold, these many years we have suffered in the wilderness, which time we might have enjoyed our possessions, yea, and we might have been happy. That last phrase, we might have been happy, is so interesting. I call it the layman trap, the I'd be happy if trap. It's like a young couple that's in love and they say, well, as soon as we're married, then we'll be happy. Then they get married and they say, well, as soon as we have children, then we'll be happy. Then they have children and they say, well, as soon as our children are all out of the house, then we'll be happy. It's like, when does the happiness ever come? Instead, you and I can choose to be happy. No matter what is happening to us, we can act in a way that brings happiness rather than react and complain. For me, this is shown really poignantly by Viktor Frankl, who lived in a concentration camp. He wrote, we who lived in concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. 
They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. We have the power to choose, and we can choose joy. President Russell M. Nelson said, The joy we feel has little to do with the circumstances of our lives and everything to do with the focus of our lives. When the focus of our lives is on Jesus Christ and His gospel, we can feel joy regardless of what is happening or not happening in our lives. Joy comes from and because of Him. Jesus Christ is joy. I think that we all know it's better to act than to react. The question is, how do we do this even when things are hard or challenging in our lives? For me, there's a two-step process that's been really helpful, and it starts with a complaint. So when I have a complaint, I want to take that complaint and turn it around into a statement of what I want. So for example, I'm in sacrament meeting or a Sunday school class, and it seems like it's a little boring. I might complain like, oh, how come the speaker didn't prepare better? Or why don't we have like a more interesting topic? But instead, I can take that complaint and turn it into a statement of what I want. What I want is to feel the Holy Ghost. And then step two, I say, what's in my power? What can I do right now to make this happen? And all of a sudden, I realize, oh, I can pray for the speaker. Or I can think about what is it that the speaker is trying to discuss and maybe think about scriptures or experiences in my own life that relate to that topic. And all of a sudden, I realize I'm not stuck. I don't have to react. There's so much that I can do to act. So think about this two-step process in your life. Are there complaints that you have? Maybe I have a complaint about something my children are doing or not doing. Well, I can take that complaint and turn it around. What is it that I want to have happen? Well, I want to have a good relationship with my children. I want my children to make good choices. Okay, great. Is there anything in my power that I can do to help make that happen today? And sometimes I'll realize, you know what? I actually don't have any power over this situation. So what I can do right now is simply to pray. Rather than complaining, I'll pour out my heart to the Lord. Acting and not reacting is always the best choice. Now, there's a couple of geographical details that I want to highlight from 1 Nephi chapter 16. In verse 13, Nephi says, We traveled for the space of four days, and we did pitch our tents again, and we did call the name of the place Shazer. So notice that in this case, there's a location, and they call it Shazer. Contrast that with verse 34. This is when Ishmael dies and was buried in a place which was called Nahum. This sounds like there's a pre-existing place. It was called. It already has a name. Nephi and his family, they named the place Shazer, but this other place was called Nahum. Is there a place in this general geographic region that was known as Nahum? And what's fascinating is, yes. Nahum is a real place that existed at the time of Lehi. There was a video that was made years ago called Journey of Faith. This documentary is available on YouTube. I've linked to it on the course website. And I just want to share with you a short clip that talks about Nahum. There are inscriptions from the Temple Baran at Marib that date to the 6th century BC that talk about individuals from Nahum. So the region was known at the time of Lehi and was called that at that period of time. The temples that were uncovered there are actually from Lehi's own time frame. But then to find the altars with uh, references to Nehem 
on them, dating from 600 BC, was just spectacular. Certain ruins or remnants of that temple were uncovered, including three altars, all of which carried this inscription, Nahum. You couldn't have asked for a neater proof that the name was there in the right place at the right time when, when it was supposed to be there for Lehi's group passing through. The witnesses tell us that Joseph didn't even know that the city of Jerusalem had walls around it. Well, if he didn't know that there was a wall around Jer Jerusalem, he certainly didn't know that there was a city or a site out in Yemen called Nahum. The idea that Joseph Smith, for example, was really well-versed on, on uh, pre-Islamic Arabian geography or customs in the desert seems to me so ludicrous as to simply be beyond belief. One has to ask the question, how could Joseph Smith possibly have known Nahum? This is one of those details that I definitely would not base my testimony of the Book of Mormon on, but it's pretty amazing. It's evidence that Joseph Smith is not making up the Book of Mormon. In our very first class, we talked about the testimony of the witnesses. And each one of them, their testimony is, we might liken it to a stick. And we could say there's other pieces of evidence, like the speed of the translation of the Book of Mormon, or Nahum, or Bountiful, which we won't even really talk about in this class, but there's lots more details about it on the course website if you want. It's another geographical evidence of the Book of Mormon's truthfulness from these chapters we're studying today. But the point is that taken individually, maybe each one of these could be like a stick that could be snapped. But collectively, it's like we're bundling these sticks together, and it's powerful evidence that the Book of Mormon is what it claims to be, an ancient record. For me, this intellectual evidence is not the most important part. It's like scaffolding that can help us strengthen our testimonies, and especially as we're in the process of building those testimonies, when there's intellectual attacks on our faith, it's helpful to know that there's intellectual evidence that the Book of Mormon is what it claims to be. Now with that, let's turn to 1 Nephi chapters 17 and 18, and I want to just get a big picture of these chapters with the heading of, These Chapters Help Us Know How to Do Hard Things. Here's five things that we can learn from what Nephi does in these chapters. Seek the Lord's guidance. Work hard to follow the promptings you receive. Make time and space to regularly receive revelation. Do things in the Lord's way, not the world's way. And don't lose hope in the face of opposition. Now, as we dive a little deeper into these chapters, look for these principles for doing hard things. And I just want to mention that if you're a fan of seminary videos, there's a great seminary video from the 1990s about a young woman who's facing a hard thing in her life, and it's likened to Nephi building a ship. So I've linked to this video on the course website if you want to see it. Nephi tells us, The voice of the Lord came unto me, saying, Arise, and get thee into the mountain. I arose and went up into the mountain, and cried unto the Lord. The Lord spake unto me, saying, Thou shalt construct a ship after the manner which I shall show thee, that I may carry thy people across these waters. Now, if the Lord would have said this to me, I would have said, It's impossible. Not because I'm not willing, but I just literally do not have the ability to build a ship. Notice how Nephi responds with great faith. He says, Lord, whither shall I go that I may find ore, that I may make tools to construct the ship after the manner which thou hast shown me? The Lord told me where I should find ore, that I might make tools. I, Nephi, did make a bellows to blow the fire, 
I did make tools out of the ore, which I had molten out of the rock. You see in Nephi a pattern of receiving revelation, acting on it. And this is happening line upon line. The Lord doesn't give Nephi all of the directions all at once. And when we face hard things, we're not going to get the complete answer all at once. Instead, Nephi tells us, I did go into the mount oft, and I did pray oft unto the Lord. Wherefore, the Lord showed unto me great things. Nephi also tells us, I did not work the timbers after the manner which was learned by men. Neither did I build the ship after the manner of men, but I did build it after the manner which the Lord had shown unto me. Wherefore, it was not after the manner of men. What an important principle for us as we're embarking on whatever hard thing we're doing in our lives. It's possible that the Lord's way is going to be different than the world's way. That shouldn't surprise us. It also shouldn't surprise us when we face serious opposition. Laman and Lemuel, they didn't want to help Nephi build a boat. They were actively working against him. I love what Nephi says. If God had commanded me to do all things, I could do them. If he should command me that I should say unto this water, Be thou earth, it should be earth. And if I should say it, it would be done. And now, if the Lord has such great power and has wrought so many miracles among the children of men, how is it that he cannot instruct me that I should build a ship? I think we can put our own names and situations into that verse. If the Lord has done so many great things, if he's performed so many miracles, how is it that he can't help me or you with the hard things that we're facing? So again, step back, think about your life. What challenges are you facing? What principles could we learn from Nephi? How could you and I seek the Lord's guidance, work hard to follow the promptings we receive, make time and space to regularly receive revelation, do things in the Lord's way, and not lose hope in the face of opposition? Now, in Nephi's case, there's a lot of opposition. When the boat is built, everything's great. The brothers are like, wow, good job, Nephi. This is amazing. Everyone gets in the boat. We're so happy. But after just a few days, the mood on the boat shifts. There's some inappropriate things going on. And when Nephi says, let's not do this, Nephi finds himself tied up by his brothers. And now there's a huge storm. I want us to just pause on this moment because I think we all know how the story is going to turn out. So it's easy for us just to brush by it. But imagine you're Lehi or Sariah. You stand up for Nephi. Hey, knock it off, guys. And they say, be quiet, mom and dad, or we're going to kill you. How does that make you feel? Or what if you're Nephi's little brother, Jacob? Maybe you're five years old. Can you imagine feeling scared, confused? And think about a woman I'm going to call Deborah. She's Nephi's wife. There's a real person. Sometimes we just brush past her. Do you remember back in 1 Nephi chapter 7 when some of Ishmael's family members were complaining against Nephi? And Nephi tells us that one of the daughters of Ishmael stood up for him. Well, I wonder if that's the one that he wound up marrying. And so, like I said, we don't know her name for reals, but I'm going to call her Deborah. Imagine how Deborah's feeling with her children, because we know that she has more than one child. Nephi tells us, my wife with her tears and prayers, and also my children did not soften the hearts of my brethren. What does it feel like to be Deborah? Maybe you have a three-year-old, a newborn. How do you feel as you're seeing your husband in this situation? You're praying. And we know how the story ends. So everything, we just kind of want to jump to that point. 
but sit for a moment with Deborah, with Sariah, with Lehi. And remember that sometimes there is a real struggle that doesn't go away right when we want it to. If I were Nephi and I were in this situation, I might be tempted to complain. But just like the pattern we saw back in chapter 16, Nephi acts. He doesn't react. He says, I did look unto my God and did praise him all the day long. And I did not murmur against the Lord because of mine afflictions. As the storm intensifies, Laman and Lemuel finally relent, untie Nephi, and they safely make it to the promised land. Now, as Nephi and his family arrive in the promised land at the end of chapter 18, this marks a major shift in Nephi's narrative. Up until now, it's mostly been a storyline with a few doctrinal insights thrown in. From this point on, it's going to be almost all doctrinal discussions with just a very little bit of storyline thrown in. Chapter 19 marks this shift. In this chapter, Nephi quotes extensively from prophets on the brass plates, people like Zenos and Zenic, that we don't actually have in our Old Testament, but they were on the records that Nephi had. Consider how these prophets testified of Jesus Christ. Nephi tells us, The God of Abraham and of Isaac and the God of Jacob yieldeth himself according to the words of the angel as a man into the hands of wicked men to be lifted up according to the words of Zenic, and to be crucified according to the words of Nehem, and to be buried in a sepulcher according to the words of Zenos. It's interesting that these ancient prophets were focused on the importance of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. As Nephi talks about what the Savior would suffer for us, he says, they scourge him and he suffereth it, and they smite him and he suffereth it. Yea, they spit upon him, and he suffereth it, because of his loving kindness and his long suffering towards the children of men. I think that there's valuable principles that we can learn from this verse. There's times in our lives when we need to turn the other cheek. We need to be long suffering and kind and not return evil for evil. At the same time, I do think that we can misinterpret this verse. Recently, I was talking with a friend and her friend had read this verse and was now starting to think about remaining in an abusive marriage. Just to be clear, this verse is not talking about being with people who are physically harming you. That's not appropriate, obviously. What this verse, I think, is saying is Jesus Christ suffered for us so we can connect with him. And maybe in the minor annoyances or challenges, irritations we have in life, we can follow Jesus's example and turn the other cheek. But definitely if we're in a dangerous situation, that's a time to get out and get help. In verse 18, we see again Nephi's core thesis. He says, I have written these things unto my people that perhaps I might persuade them to remember the Lord, their Redeemer. Earlier, Nephi had told us that his whole purpose was to persuade us to come unto Jesus Christ. That's why he's now quoting from the brass plates, and that's why he's going to extensively quote from Isaiah. Nephi writes, I did read many things unto my brothers which were written in the books of Moses, but that I might more fully persuade them to believe in the Lord their Redeemer. I did read unto them that which was written by the prophet Isaiah. For I did liken all scriptures unto us, that it might be for our profit and learning. Wherefore I spake unto them, saying, Hear ye the words of the prophet, ye who are the remnant of the house of Israel. 
and liken them unto yourselves that ye may have hope. Nephi is quoting from Isaiah to point us to Jesus Christ and to give us hope. And it's ironic that for many of us, we make jokes about Isaiah. We say, oh, Isaiah is so hard, but Nephi does not see it that way. I will be honest, for many years, I did view Isaiah as a barrier. There was a time when I was a child, it was Christmas Eve, and I was having a hard time falling asleep. What did I do? I opened up to the book of Isaiah and boom, straight to sleep. And I'm embarrassed to admit that for many years after that, I continued to struggle with Isaiah. In fact, in my early days of teaching, if there was a group of chapters like we're studying today, 1 Nephi chapter 16 through 22, I would just teach 1 Nephi 16 through 19 and then say, oh, look, we're out of time. Well, Isaiah is really awesome. We'll learn more about him later and just brush past it. But that changed for me when one of my colleagues, Matt Gray, shared with me what he calls the Isaiah map. And I want to share the Isaiah map with you. It's something that has revolutionized the way that I've studied Isaiah, and it's helped me see that it's not as difficult as I thought. At the heart of the Isaiah map is an understanding of what's happening geopolitically between 730 and 530 BC. Probably most of us know about little individual events that happened during this time, like the scattering of Israel, but we haven't been able to put all the pieces together. This one-page map helps us put those pieces together, and this is the time period of Isaiah, of Nephi. It was their current events. So if we can understand these events better, it will deeply help us liken Isaiah's writings to our lives. So let's take a look at the Isaiah map by zooming in at the top left-hand corner. In 1 Nephi chapter 19, verses 22 and 23, Nephi not only tells us to liken Isaiah, he also says that Isaiah is writing about things of old times. Often when we read Isaiah, we want to make it all about us. And there's so many ways we can liken Isaiah's words, but we also need to pay the price to understand what did this mean in Isaiah's day and time. Likening means Y is like X. And often we don't pay the price to know what is the X, what is it that we're likening. So as we study the Isaiah chapters today and in future classes, we'll focus a lot on the X, the actual historical events, so that we can better liken them to our lives. In 2 Nephi chapter 25, verses 4 through 8, Nephi gives some important keys for studying Isaiah. He tells us, I have dwelt at Jerusalem. Wherefore, I know concerning the regions round about. In other words, if you want to understand Isaiah, it's important to know about the geography of Isaiah's time. Nephi says, I have made mention unto my children concerning the judgments of God, which hath come to pass among the Jews. For example, imagine if I said to you, Obama went to the Big Apple to meet with the UN. He is angry with Moscow. I think most of us could understand this hypothetical sentence, but if you're not familiar with political terms and geographical references from the early 2000s, this sentence won't make any sense. So as we pay the price to learn a little bit about Isaiah's day and time, it will help us immensely better understand his teachings. So back to that upper left-hand corner, just a few other little facts. Isaiah's prophesying roughly between 740 and 700 BC, and his chapters can be marked into two major divisions. And I acknowledge this is a, a big oversimplification. It's just to help us as we're getting into Isaiah. Chapters 1 through 39, we could categorize as judgments of God against prideful nations. And chapters 40 through 66, as messages of hope and restoration 
for exiled Jews. So let's explore now the left-hand side of the map. If we were to go back in time, we might remember that between roughly 150 and 950 BC, under kings Saul, David, and Solomon, Israel was united together as a country. But around 950 BC, there was a split between the northern kingdom of Israel, which we usually read as Israel in the Old Testament, and the kingdom of Judah. So let's learn a few facts about Judah and Israel. First, the southern kingdom, Judah. Its capital city is Jerusalem, also known as Zion. Its principal tribe is Judah. And the main kings that we'll interact with, which Isaiah was interacting with, are Ahaz and Hezekiah. Now, the northern kingdom, or Israel, its capital is Samaria. Its dominant tribe is Ephraim, and their king is Pekah, the son of Remaliah. Now, I know this might feel like, whoa, too much information. Why does this matter? It's because as Isaiah's writing, he'll often refer to Ephraim or Samaria. That would be like saying Washington, D.C. He's referring to a capital city. He's referring to the dominant tribe. And if we know that, oh, that means he's talking about the northern kingdom of Israel, that'll help us better understand these passages. Now, there's a couple of other countries I've labeled on the left-hand portion of the map. We've got Syria with its capital, Damascus, and King Rezin. And we've also got Lebanon, which is known for its mighty cedar trees. So Syria and Lebanon will come into our discussion as well. Let's shift to the right-hand portion of the map. And here we'll see three successive superpowers. First, we have Assyria. And from roughly in the 730s to 720s BC, Assyria will destroy northern Israel and scatter the ten tribes. So we've heard about the lost ten tribes. This is where they're lost. It's in 2 Kings chapter 17. You can read all about it. And this was contemporary in Isaiah's lifetime. So it's no surprise that he's writing a lot about it. Now, Assyria will also go and attack the kingdom of Judah. It will have some success and get even to the doors of Jerusalem, but at the last moment, the Lord performs a miracle and Assyria does not take over Judah, does not take over Jerusalem. Well, decades pass and a new superpower arises. This is Babylon. Babylon, between 605 and 586 BC, will conquer Judah. It will send the Jews into exile, and we can read about this in 2 Kings 24 and 25. Now, there's a difference between what Assyria did and what Babylon did. Assyria scattered the ten tribes. It scattered northern Israel, and so the identity of those individuals was lost. But Babylon didn't scatter the Jews. Rather, it sent them into exile, into different pockets. But Jewish people were able to retain their identity. And that takes us about seven years later when a new superpower, Persia, arises. In 539 BC, Persia will conquer Babylon and their king, Cyrus, sets the Jews free. I know that's a lot of information, but especially in the chapters that we're about to read today, we'll see a lot of Babylon and Persia in these chapters. And so knowing the storyline can really help us both understand Isaiah's context and then what it might mean for us in our day. Before we dive into these chapters, though, I just want to give two additional tips for studying Isaiah. First is to remember that Isaiah speaks poetically. It's like song lyrics. You can't take every word literally. Think about these song lyrics from a few years ago. If you ain't here, I just can't breathe. It's no air, no air, no air. I walked, I ran, I jumped, I flew right off the ground to float to you. 
there's no gravity to hold me down for real. Perhaps thousands of years from now, scholars will identify these lyrics and they'll be talking about, well, there was a great environmental crisis during this time period. The people were worried about breathing. In fact, the laws of gravity were reversed. Some people started to float. That's absolutely not what these lyrics are talking about, right? It's a song about love. So as we read Isaiah, we have to look carefully for symbolism and when he's speaking poetically. Here's one more tip. This one's from President Dallin H. Oaks. He said, the book of Isaiah contains numerous prophecies that seem to have multiple fulfillments. One seems to involve the people of Isaiah's day or the circumstances of the next generation. Another meaning, often symbolic, seems to refer to events in the meridian of time when Jerusalem was destroyed and her people scattered after the crucifixion of the Son of God. Still, another meaning or fulfillment of the same prophecy seems to relate to the events attending the second coming of the Savior. Often we want to know the one true meaning of a specific passage, but when it comes to Isaiah, there's multiple meanings. So don't be surprised if we see multiple ways that Isaiah can be interpreted. All right, are you ready to dive into 1 Nephi chapter 20? If you look at the chapter heading, you'll see that 1 Nephi chapter 20 is similar to Isaiah 48. So right away, that should give us a framework. This is in that second portion of Isaiah, which centers on messages of hope and restoration for exiled Jews. So that's the lens that I want to bring to this chapter. Is this the right lens? Well, take a look in verse 14. The Lord will do his pleasure on Babylon and his arm shall come upon the Chaldeans. So we can see this is a setting when the Jews are in exile and the Lord is going to do his pleasure or he's going to punish Babylon and help set the Jews free. By the way, this verse reminds me of another key for understanding Isaiah, which is that Isaiah will often speak in doubles or in pairs. He'll say one thing, and then in the next line, he'll say the same thing, just with slightly different words. So in this case, the Lord will do his pleasure on Babylon, and his arm shall come upon the Chaldeans. We might say, wait, I have no idea who the Chaldeans are. Don't worry, just by looking at the parallel reference, we can see, okay, the Chaldeans are probably somehow connected to the Babylonians, and we get the main idea. I think sometimes I can be confused in Isaiah when I'm trying to understand every word or phrase, and it can be helpful just to step back, look at the big picture, and make sure I can see what's going on here. It seems clear that these are Jews in exile, and God's going to help them by doing his pleasure on Babylon. In verse 10, the Lord says, I have refined thee, I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. So again, in context, the furnace of affliction we're talking about, this is Jews in Babylonian captivity. The Lord continues, I will not suffer my name to be polluted. I am the first and also the last. Mine hand hath laid the foundation of the earth. My right hand hath spanned the heavens. I call unto them and they stand up together. Can you see how this is a message of hope? It's like, I am all powerful. I am God. Don't worry. I know you're struggling, but I am going to help you. In verse 18, the Lord says, Oh, that thou hadst hearkened to my commandments. Then had thy peace been as a river, and thy righteousness as the waves of the sea. So things could have gone better for the Jews in exile, but it's not too late. In verse 20, the Lord says, Go ye forth of Babylon, flee ye from the Chaldeans. With a voice of singing, declare ye, tell this utter to the end of the earth. Say ye, the Lord hath redeemed his servant Jacob. And they thirsted not. He led them through the deserts, 
He caused the waters to flow out of the rock for them. He claved the rock also, and the waters gushed out. Can you see how this is a message of hope? The Jews are in Babylonian captivity, and the Lord says, Hey, don't you remember the Israelites in Egyptian captivity? I helped rescue them. I'm going to rescue you as well. We see these same themes continuing in chapter 21. Again, if you look at the heading for chapter 21, you'll see it's compare Isaiah 49. Now, one thing that could be a little confusing about this chapter heading, it says about 588 to 570 BC. This is referring to the time period when Nephi is writing, but Isaiah dates well before this time. In verse 8, we read, In an acceptable time I have heard thee, O isles of the sea, and in a day of salvation have I helped thee, and I will preserve thee, and give thee my servant for a covenant of the people, to establish the earth, to cause to inherit the desolate heritages. Can you see how in context it's Jerusalem that's the desolate heritage? Babylon destroyed Jerusalem. But now the Lord's saying, don't worry, I'm going to help you take back this land. He says that thou mayest sayest to the prisoners, go forth to them that sit in darkness, show yourselves. They shall feed in the ways and their pastures shall be in all high places. There's lots of ways that we could liken this passage, but in context, it's like the Jews in captivity, they are the prisoners, they're in darkness. And the Lord says, I am here and I am going to help you. In verse 10, we read, They shall not hunger nor thirst, neither shall the heat nor the sun smite them. For he that hath mercy on them shall lead them, even by the springs of water shall he guide them. And I will make all my mountains away and my highways shall be exalted. And then, O house of Israel, behold, these shall come from far. Lo, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Sinim. This is another good opportunity for us to remember that we don't need to know every detail. We might wonder when it says the land of Sinim, what is that talking about? Well, scholars disagree about the answer to that question, but the main message should be clear. These will come from the north, these from the west, even from the land of Sinem, some very far away place. Everyone is going to be gathered together again. This is a message of hope. In verse 14, we read, Zion hath said, The Lord hath forsaken me. My Lord hath forgotten me. This phrase is especially powerful when we remember the context. This is a 70-year trial that the Jews are experiencing. I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm in a trial for 70 minutes or 70 hours, and I'm starting to feel like, oh, this is terrible. They're really experiencing difficulty. They're starting to feel like God has forgotten me. It's been years of a trial that they're experiencing. But the Lord says, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? It's very unlikely, the Lord says, but it's possible. Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. And then the Lord says, Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. I love that phrase, I have graven thee. In Hebrew, that's you singular. It's not, I have engraven all y'all in the palms of my hands. It's you personally. Jesus Christ has a connection with you. He is not forsaken. He has not forgotten you. The Lord says in verse 17, Thy children shall make haste against thy destroyers. They that made thee waste shall go forth of thee. Can you see how this is a message of hope? 
the Lord is saying that the next generation of Jews won't remain in Babylonian captivity. But some of the people are still discouraged. In response to these discouraged words, the Lord offers a promise. Now, this next passage is really important. Nephi will repeat it. Jacob will repeat it. So let's unpack it and really understand it. The Lord says, I will lift up mine hand to the Gentiles and set up my standard to the people. They shall bring thy sons in their arms, and thy daughters shall be carried upon their shoulders. And kings, like King Cyrus, shall be thy nursing fathers, their queens thy nursing mothers. They shall bow down to thee with their face towards the earth and lick up the dust of thy feet. Now remember that Isaiah speaks poetically, so we don't have to ask ourselves, okay, which Persian king is going to be licking the dust of which Jewish person? That's not what it's saying. It's saying there's going to be a powerful group of people, Persia, that's going to come in and take over Babylon. We read in verse 24, shall the prey be taken from the mighty or the lawful captives delivered? So in context, the prey is Judah and the mighty is Babylon. So how is it that Judah is going to be delivered? If a lion is munching on a goat, do you go take the goat away from the lion? No, you don't. But the Lord says, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away. And the prey, Judah, of the terrible Babylon shall be delivered. For I will contend with him that contendeth with thee, and I will save thy children. All flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am thy Savior and thy Redeemer. These passages are so beautiful. Now, it's possible that some of us are saying, okay, I get that this is about Jews and Babylonian captivity, and God's going to help Persia to save the Jews. This is like a, a great history lesson and beautiful, but how does this relate to me in my life? Well, that's where we turn to chapter 22 for Nephi's explanation. I think it's a little bit humorous in verse 1 how Laman and Lemuel come to Nephi and say, What meaneth these things which ye have read? That's sometimes how we feel after reading Isaiah. So if you ever feel that way after reading Isaiah, don't worry. Laman and Lemuel, they're right there with you. They ask Nephi, Are these things temporal or spiritual? And Nephi, of course, says both. In the first few verses of chapter 22, Nephi explains how there's literally a scattering of Israel, and they're going to be gathered together again. And then he goes on and he gives a spiritual likening of these passages. He says, The time cometh that after all the house of Israel have been scattered and confounded, that the Lord God will raise up a mighty nation among the Gentiles, yea, even upon the face of this land. And by them shall our seed be scattered. And after our seed is scattered, the Lord will proceed to do a marvelous work among the Gentiles. Now, don't forget to keep your eye on the phrase marvelous work. When it's used in the Book of Mormon, it's almost always a reference to the restoration, to the work of Joseph Smith or the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. In other words, it's like Nephi is saying something like, Scattered Israel is in spiritual captivity. They're in darkness. They don't know of Jesus Christ in his fullness. And so modern-day Gentiles, through the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, are going to bring this to scattered remnants of Israel. Nephi says, The Lord God will proceed to do a marvelous work among the Gentiles, which shall be of great worth unto our seed, wherefore it is likened unto their being nourished by the Gentiles, and being carried in their arms and upon their shoulders. As Nephi continues, he's going to use specific phrases from Isaiah as well as from his vision of the tree of life to describe what will be happening in the latter days. 
Nephi says, they shall know that the Lord is their Savior and their Redeemer, the Mighty One of Israel. The great and abominable church shall be drunken with their own blood. Isaiah had taught that Babylon would be drunken with its own blood. And now Nephi is saying that same thing will be happening to all those who are opposing Jesus Christ in the latter days. Nephi says they shall fall into the pit which they dig to ensnare the people of the Lord. All that fight against Zion shall be destroyed. That great and abominable church shall tumble to the dust and great shall be the fall of it. Or as we talked about in our previous class, Jesus wins. Now there's a phrase that Nephi repeats over and over again that has brought great comfort to me in my life. He says, God will preserve the righteous by his power. He says, the righteous need not fear. The righteous shall not perish. The righteous need not fear. Now, this might be too personal, but just a little story from my life. When I was about 11 years old, one day at recess, a bully came up to me and he said, hey, John, after school, I'm going to beat you up. Now, I responded bravely, but inside I was terrified. When the bell rang at the end of the day, I ran home as fast as I could and the bully didn't find me. So I was safe. But then I realized I had a problem. I had a newspaper route, and in order to pick up my newspapers, I had to ride my bike right past the bully's house. What was I going to do? My first thought was I should get my Cub Scout pocket knife and defend myself. But then I thought, well, by the time I pull out the knife, the bully will probably like use it on me and violence is never the answer. So I didn't use the knife. Instead, I went downstairs and I asked my mom if she would give me a ride to pick up my newspapers. Well, my mom was super busy with all of her children. She said no, and I started to cry. That surprised my mom. She said, why are you crying? And I didn't want to tell her because I was embarrassed, so I just kept crying. Well, eventually my mom had pity on me. She took me to get my newspapers, but I knew that that was just a short-term solution. Now, somehow, even though I was a child, probably because of the awesome parents I had, I had learned that the scriptures have the answers to the questions in our lives. So I looked up the word fear in the topical guide, and I started writing down verses that touched my heart. Like these verses here the righteous need not fear. And anytime I was afraid, I would go and I would look at those verses and they gave me strength. I testify that when we are keeping God's commandments, we do not need to be afraid. And that takes us to an experience from a woman named Tessa. She's part of our Book of Mormon masterclass. And recently she shared this video with me about how the Lord is helping her not fear, even in a difficult time. I'm Tessa and I'm a young mom of three kids. My husband finished school in May and he had a job and our life was set up for success. Two weeks later, the job fell through and we were living in my parents' basement with no direction and no job. It was heartbreaking and scary and it felt very unstable. I prayed to Heavenly Father for guidance and I wanted to know where we were supposed to be going. And about this time, the Lord actually gave me a calling. I was hesitant to accept the calling because I wasn't even sure if I would be there another week. Who knew? But I accepted it anyway. And when I went in to get set apart for the calling, I had the most incredible blessing that I've had in my entire life. The man talked about my circumstances like he knew them word for word. And I knew that these were Heavenly Father's words because of that. He told me that there was blessings to come and that I needed to be patient. And if I felt like I was being patient, I would need to be more patient. 
even though I was asked to be patient, um, I knew that I wasn't alone and that Heavenly Father was going to deliver me out of my trials and that I didn't need to fear because I was going to be taken care of because Heavenly Father had a plan for my family. Tessa's problems weren't resolved all at once and there's still struggles in her life. But I am pleased to report that recently her husband did get a job, they've moved to a new state, and they're working on building that happily ever after. I was so touched as I heard Tessa's testimony and felt her faith in Jesus Christ. And I think that's because ultimately the reason why we don't need to fear is because of Jesus Christ. As Nephi concludes, he says, The Holy One of Israel shall execute judgment in righteousness. The Holy One of Israel must reign in dominion and might and power and great glory. The Holy One of Israel reigneth. Jesus Christ is in control. Just like He delivered the Jews from Babylonian captivity, He will help us. He will strengthen us in whatever challenging circumstances we face. Thank you for listening today. We hope you'll rate this podcast and leave a review. It really helps others discover it. This course is more than a podcast. There are several additional elements, including readings, PowerPoints, and other learning resources. These are all freely available at johnhiltoniii.com slash the Book of Mormon. We hope to see you there.